Hi, everyone, and welcome to The J-Curve, a podcast about tech ecosystem builders in Latin America with me, Olga Maslikova. Today's episode is the look back into some of the most impactful conversations of this year. And 2023 was a pivotal year for me as I decided to go full-time into building The J-Curve into the leading content platform about entrepreneurship and venture capital in Latin America. It has also been a pivotal year for The J-Curve itself as we moved all recordings to in-person form format and slightly increase the length of the episodes from 30 minutes to in between one hour and one hour 30 minutes to allow ourselves to go deeper into the stories of the key players of LATAM tech ecosystem. We've enjoyed some pretty impressive growth over the last 12 months that couldn't have happened without you listeners and without our small team. Here's some statistics from Spotify that I would like to share. We've released 25 episodes, 19 of each were in studio episodes. 92% of our listeners on Spotify discovered us in 2023. The J-Curve was streamed in 38 countries with 78% of our total audience coming from Brazil, followed by Chile, Argentina, United States, and Mexico. The number of streams grew by over 250% and the followers base by whooping 300%. 27% of the podcast shared happened over WhatsApp. So thank you listeners and friends of the J-Curve. None of this growth could have happened without your support and encouragement. So what are the most listened episodes of 2023 on Spotify? Without further ado, here's our top 10 this year. Number 10. Number 10 is our conversation with Gabriela Gonzalez, managing partner at Brazilian venture debt provider Nila Capital. Prior to that, Gabriela was a co-founder at Rocket Internet-backed Southeast Asian e-commerce unicorn Lazada that was acquired by Alibaba. We've had a fascinating discussion about venture debt as a financial instrument, how it is different from venture capital, and what are the asset-specific requirements startups have to meet in order to raise it? We also talked a lot about Gabrielle's experience of building one of the largest, if not the largest, e-com company in Southeast Asia during her time at Rocket Internet. Here's a part of our conversation in which Gabriella reflects on her learnings from that fast-paced experience. When you look at that roller coaster type of experience in Rocket Internet, what were the key learnings that you took with you in terms of execution, operations, whatever else? I do think that taking inspiration from other businesses can be helpful and can help you scale a little bit faster. I think they were very focused on, again, just getting the business off the ground. And again, in e-commerce, if you're just a small guy, some other guy is going to become bigger than you and he is going to take the market. So in those specific businesses, scale is important, speed is important. You need to be fast going in the market. You need to be fast taking the market. You need to be fast establishing yourself in the market. And operationally, you need to be very sharp. Rocket is obsessed with KPIs. We had a list of, I don't know, 200 KPIs and, uh, we all had KPIs memorized in our head and just because metrics were so important for that business. How successful is your marketing doing? How successful is your delivery? How are returns going? What are rates of conversion? All of this are data that would definitely help you make decisions. And I think maybe that's the second learning. Sometimes people overlook data and I think having data and lots of data on everything is essential for you to 
be able to make better decisions. The not so positive learning that I think it has a lot to do with what we've seen kind of happen in the market in 2021, 2020, and the consequences in 2022 is that Rocket was probably one of the first that had this obsession with top line and growth. The bottom line in terms of numbers was much less relevant. And at that time, again, maybe even for the business models of e-commerce that they needed to be big and they needed to be the incumbent in the market, it made a little bit more sense. But that was something that always kind of bothered me in the whole story. This complete obsession only with the top line. And I think we saw the consequences of that happening 10 years later. But I think Rocket was one of the precursors of the companies that had this obsession with top line, did bring in a lot of that culture into the ecosystem. Number nine. Number nine is the episode with Roberto Dagnoni, an Endeavor entrepreneur and the executive chairman and CEO at To The Moon a holding company of Mercado Bitcoin, the largest crypto exchange in Latin America that was valued at $2.1 billion after raising $200 million in Series B from the SoftBank Latin America Fund. Roberto has also invested in 60-plus early-stage startups, including Brazilian digital bank Neon. We had a fascinating discussion around the real-world application of blockchain and crypto, why Brazil is a hotbed for crypto adoption, how to build successful remote first company and more. The part of our conversation that I want to highlight specifically is about the Central Bank of Brazil though. Very few people outside of Brazilian financial system know, but the Brazilian Central Bank is one of the most advanced financial regulators in the world, whose policies were critical for the recent successes of fintechs in the country. So what makes it so special? Before we talk about your endeavor in crypto and Mercado Bitcoin, you mentioned central bank being incredibly advanced in terms of infrastructure and in terms of initiatives. But if you just reverse back and think about why is it so ahead of the pack in terms of initiatives and in terms of support and infrastructure? Well, I think the, the financial market in Brazil is really well developed. It's kind of concentrated and uh, it somehow helped to, to evolve. Central bank is independent politically, a very technical, and uh, especially in this season with Roberto Campos, they are doing a three-step digital transformation. And those blocks are PIX, what do we call PIX? Picks. So PIX is amazing. It's I like think. a Venmo yeah, on like it's, the, the but, state level. Is that yeah, right? Now we have, I think, 3 billion transactions a month. And the amount of transactions in credit card has not come down. That's what's surprising everyone because it's showing that there was some demand that needed a simpler and faster solution. And that's enabling more transactions. Sometimes maybe people were holding up to make one transfer. And now they do micro transfers for free. Instantaneously, we using cell phone, email, or uh, QR code, and it's not only for wire transfer, but for payments as well. So you you pay your taxi, your utility bills, yeah, your everything, and that's a big step. The second one is open finance. So Brazil is taking that really seriously. So in terms of auctioning your you know your mortgage and transferring that from one, one bank to another, and seeing these comparisons, so I think uh, central bank. They're even talking about having a super app 
powered by central bank where you will have your full financial life in one place. So it's really interesting what they're doing. Open Finance is the second one, and the third one is the CBDC, the central bank digital, digital coin, digital currency. And that's the one they are piloting now. We are very happy to be selected as one of the 16 companies and consortiums that are will be piloting solutions with uh, CBDC. And uh, I think this is going to empower many, many fintechs and, and banks and companies in terms of FX and imagine having this layer of blockchain to interact with central bank and overnight deposits and, and talking about doing FX using crypto because Brazil is not so efficient in FX uh, like you have Mexico, US very close. So to do a SWIFT and uh, it's complex, takes days. Uh, so we we are quite excited with this momentum of the regulation and the regulation of crypto. We just got it and it came that central bank is going to be the regulator of the crypto exchanges. Which is good news for the market. That, eh? uh, that's great news. Number eight. Number eight is the episode with Alec Oxenford, serial entrepreneur, managing partner at Moiling VC. Co-founder at two tech unicorns, including online marketplace platform OLX, that was acquired by Naspers after raising capital from the likes of General Catalyst, Founders Fund, and Bessemer Venture Partners, and LetGo that merged with OfferUp. On top of that, Alec is an important Argentinian contemporary art collector. Our conversation about AI, contemporary art, and what it has to do with venture capital, as well as why the future of tech will be still concentrated in the U.S. was excellent. The piece that stuck with me the most, though, was the importance of fun work culture for the productivity and creativity of the teams. The other thing, which is, I think, quite non-standard that I would include in the playbook, is have fun. And I, I mentioned this often, you know, this idea of having fun because I learned it the hard way. I didn't have a lot of fun in my early career. I thought that discipline and being early to work and the last to leave to go home and suffering a lot, the acid test, am I doing the things well? Yeah, did I only sleep four hours yesterday? Fantastic, you know, this is the way to go. Have I not talked to anybody and not seeing any friends? Great, that means I'm really committed, you know, like uh, I, am I suffering and losing hair? Excellent, you know, the, the body is reflecting the level of commitment. My level of commitment and effort and everything, this is going to be great. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. It's quite the opposite, actually. So, When did you realize that, by the way? It's so interesting. <laughs> yeah, so, sometime in, in the middle of the OLX adventure. Okay. The middle, not the beginning, but the middle of the, and then definitely afterwards. And we learned that, I learned, I think it was a collective thing, that when you have fun, all kinds of very good things happen. You think a lot clearer. You can think more boldly. You can. You don't have. Um, you don't restrict anything. Think of when you are doing something that you really like. You're having fun. It's like energy flows. You know, ideas come nicely. You are creative. You're inspired. You're credible. You smile. People believe in you. Think about when somebody tells you, you have to do that, you know, and you dislike it, and you, but you still have to do it. You're bored. You're trying to force yourself to make it happen. You're completely not credible. You don't motivate others. It's a lot less effective. Now, the issue is, okay, if, if being in that state of having fun makes sense, 
It's a prerequisite to being effective. How do you manage for that? How do you make sure that everybody's having fun? That's when it becomes a bit complicated because there's no Harvard playbook or Harvard manual that says, how do you, you know, how do you build a company where people have fun? And it's not normally what people focus on. You know, people don't focus on whatever the, make sure you have the best IQs or the correct gender mix or the age thing or the experience, whatever. Not necessarily that people have fun, but, but I'm convinced of it. So kinds of things you can look at that would be in the playbook. Make sure people can make fool of themselves without consequences. Because when they can make fool of themselves, that means the environment is not dangerous. You cannot have fun in a context where you are threatened, you know, you're in danger. When you're completely yourself, you can be foolish. And that's fantastic. That means you are relaxed, which means you're not being threatened, which means you probably are having fun. So you need a, a certain level of foolishness, informality. Some rules, but not many. Very few rules that count. With that kind of context, then the productivity of the team, it's not 10%, it's 10x through the roof. You, you sort of get all kinds of energy and ideas and real results that you certainly would not have in a more standard and typical context where you're here and this is your, your job description and these are the goals and, uh, and this is what everybody else does and now this is a time scale, this is your card, make sure you do this quickly and by the way, the guy in the other desk is doing it very fast. So careful, you know, and, uh, and this is a bit of an upper, upper out culture. And so in six months, we'll tell you whether you stay or you jump out the window. Like, man, not the most, you're going to be good. You're going to be fantastic in that context. You know, you're going to, you're going to do everything not to be bad, but you're going to be fantastic because you won't, you won't take risks. You won't really think out of the box. And it's very hard to, in a competitive world, it's possible, but very hard to win against everybody not thinking out of the box. Playing the same game that everybody plays. Sometimes you do win, but man, it's a lot of effort because it means you are the absolute best in everything because you're playing the same, you're running the same race. You have to be the fastest all the time. Whereas if you can play a different game, you know what? Let him run. I'm biking. Or I'm actually paying somebody to, to run, you know, instead of me. Number seven. Number seven is my conversation with Fabio Carrara, founder and CEO at Brazilian renewable energy firm Solfassel, that has raised over $130 million from the likes of QED, Fifth Wall, SoftBank, VEF, and Valor Capital. I absolutely love chatting with Fabio about how to succeed in the commoditized market and become a value-add player for the whole ecosystem. I also loved his approach towards starting a solar energy company from the first principle thinking, understanding the key adoption drivers, and reading the body response towards a certain business idea. Check it out. As a guy who worked a lot uh, with strategy at BCG, I mean, I, I feel that I, I have sort of like the first principle framework thinking, and I, I looked very basic drivers, but uh, the most important drives to check whether a market has the potential or not. And it's three drivers, pretty much. The price of electricity, 
the amount of sunlight that you have and the cost of labor. And on those three drivers, Brazil was top quartile. Brazil has the same cost of electricity that a Californian has per unit, like 20 cents of dollar, which is crazy because a Californian is 10 times richer than a Brazilian. We have much more sun than most of the countries in the world, not in a specific region, everywhere, like from north to south. The state of Brazil who has the least amount of sun, which I think it's Paraná or Santa Catarina, it's better than all over Germany, which was a superpower in distributed solar. And finally, cost of labor, because rooftop solar is very... Labor intense. It's very labor intense. It's very affordable, but compared to the traditional centralized approach, there is more labor because you have to climb roofs, blah, blah, blah. So those three drivers were like really, really good. So if you compound them, the IRR, the return on the investment is just better in Brazil. So as I said, it didn't happen, but it's going to happen. I better start now. All the fear that I had in the other business ideas, like the conversation with my father, for some reason, I think I was ready. The passion was there. The learnings were there. And I quit the job without thinking. I had a little bit of money in the bank account because I had took a loan while I was uh, at Wharton, like a student loan. Instead of spending my money, I kept my money because I was thinking, no, I might have to bootstrap a little bit. And I quit the job and, and I... I went to my house. I used to live in a house with three other people, my brother and two friends. And so I bought a big table from an auction from one of the companies of Eki Batista, who was a multi-billionaire back in the beginning of the last decade. Put together a table. I bought a telephone and a, a, a nice internet and I said, founding my, my solar company. Number six. Number six is the episode with Patricia Moraes, founder and managing partner at Unbox Capital, Sao Paulo-based venture capital firm that Patricia co-founded together with Luisa Trajano, Brazilian billionaire and the chairwoman of retail magazine Luisa. Unbox Capital portfolio includes the likes of Solinftech, Rock Content, and Incognia. Prior to starting Unbox Capital, Patricia spent over 22 years as a managing director at JP Morgan. What an incredible conversation we had about startup board governance, competitive advantages of Brazilian founders, and key elements of successful partnerships. But my absolute favorite part of our conversation was about people first leadership. So, 25 years in finance. What was that aha moment that led to your decision to leave this finance career and essentially become an entrepreneur in venture capital? How did that come to be? When you are in an institution with such a, a heavy name and I had a heavy position in an institution with a heavy name, you kind of get to connected. I was almost Patricia from JP Morgan. I almost didn't have <laughs> my a last name. My last name is JP Morgan. It was almost like this. And uh, for me, the aha moment that was incredible was when I left. And a lot of people, you know, came to my office and talked to me, oh, don't leave, and, you know, all that stuff. But the interesting thing was people were not thinking about 
the deal that we did together or the transaction. It was all personal. People were saying, I will never forget when we, you went, my father was sick and you went uh, to the hospital to visit me because I was there with him. Or when I had the chance to go abroad on a uh, career opportunity and you talked to me and you gave me strength to go forward because I was insecure. It had nothing to do. It was very interesting with, you know, we did that IPO or that large M&A. It was very much about people. So when I left, I thought, okay, let's see who looks at me as Patricia and who looks at me as Patricia from JP Morgan. And I have to say, 100% of the people who were looking at me at Patricia, I didn't have one unreturned call. I had a lot of incoming calls and people thought I could do anything, you know, from being a board member, from being CEO of a bank, being partner at a small boutique or starting my VC firm. That was very rewarding. I think that was a very big aha moment because I've always been personable in a finance world where sometimes it's not much valued or people think it's not much value. Yeah, people perceive it as a transactional environment and you prove that it's not. So that showed me that building my business, you have to put people first. And then when people are with you on the boat, everybody together, you'll go through any wave. And we've had many waves. And that's very rewarding to be able to, to build something that has your values and has the values of the people that are partnering with you in that uh, journey. Number five. Number five is the episode with Lucas Vargas, CEO at Brazilian fintech Nomad, that has recently raised $61 million new investment round led by Tiger Global with the participation from the prior investors, including Manashis, Stripes, and Global Ventures. Prior to joining Nomad, Lucas was CEO at Viva Real, which he led through the merger with Grupo Zap and acquisition by OLX, the leading marketplace group in Brazil. I loved, loved, loved Lucas's take on structuring the system of incentives in the startup, fundraising in bear markets, scaling corporate culture in high growth environments, and building partnerships based on the interest alignments and shared objectives in life. The part of our conversation that I would like to share, though, is related to handling layoffs, the experience that too many founders had to go through in 2022 and 2023. So you had to lay off people back in your days at uh, Viva, Real, and Zap, and now you had to do certain cuts in Nomad just recently. So what would your advice be to the founders or several pieces of advice in terms of how to navigate this challenging process, both in terms of the firing itself, but also in terms of managing your own emotions and managing the team that stays? Yeah. Um, So it is definitely the worst part of being an entrepreneur. It's managing layoffs. It's really hard. And it's, it's the CEO's responsibility, regardless of what happens with the market. Having said that, no playbook, but always think twice before 
growing the team and easier said than done. You mentioned we, about a year ago, in August last year, we had this layoff and we had to let go lots of people. We were growing a lot in the beginning of 22. We hired a lot of people and then uh, we raised in May our extension. It was a big round. And at the same time, even though we had this very aggressive growth plan and confidence, we were still operating with the mindset of 21, which is invest a lot. You're going to be able to raise again soon. So when we raised the 32, we were still operating with the mindset of six months from now, we're going to be raising a huge round. And so we, looking at what really happened with the industry, we decided to adjust our plan so that we could reach break-even without needing any additional cash, which was not how we operated since founding the company. When we raised our extension, we had less than two months of cash last year. So in May, we raised. We couldn't make it till the end of July. Yeah, we couldn't make it to the end of July. That's how we were operating. And um, so we decided to, to make an adjustment to our approach. We were still comfortable with some big investments, like the VIP lounge that we launched in Guarulhos. We... Um, we decided to keep that investment because in our understanding, it was going to help us accelerate growth. At the same time, we made decisions to cut a few other investments and we made the decision to make the layoff. So it's very hard. There's no playbook, but I would always advise that expansion comes with inefficiency. It's very hard for you to bring new people to the team and to maximize the output that those people bring, right? Like if you hire a new manager, if you bring people to a team as a peer, you're always going to have to reassemble the team. You're always going to have to rethink about responsibilities. There's always going to be inefficiency. So think about that up front. That's maybe one, one advice. The second is do earlier than later, I think. I haven't met anyone who thought about that differently. Whenever you make those hard decisions, Sooner than later, it's easier because you start rebuilding sooner, right? And the main advice, I think, the main learning that I had multiple years ago and that I still have in my mind is if you have to do it, prioritize those that are staying at the company. And oh, if people say, oh, that's such a harsh approach, if you're prioritizing those who stay or you're not prioritizing those who leave, no the opposite because those who stay they still have connections with those who leave and for you to prioritize those who stay you have to treat the best way those who are leaving so think about those that are staying and think about what is going to make them stay engaged and happy and committed to the firm after they see their friends leaving and if you optimize for engagement of those who stay, you're definitely going to take care of those who are living as well. So having that in mind helped me navigate the process in the best way. Number four. Number four this year is the special edition of the J-Curve with Julia Vasconcelos, founding partner at Brazilian early stage venture capital firm Atlantico, founder at Canary, 
former Brazil country manager for Facebook and former entrepreneur in residence in Benchmark, and Ana Clara Martins, partner at Atlantico and co-founder of Brazil in Silicon Valley, one of the largest annual conferences that connects entrepreneurs, executives, and investors from Brazil with global tech community. In this episode, we go deep into nitty-gritty details of the 2023 Atlantico Digital Report, the most comprehensive overview of key tech trends in Latin America. The episode is a must-listen for anybody interested in investing or starting a business in Brazil and Latin America. We talked about the main forces that will shape the future of Latin America, the reasons why more and more global companies will be coming from Latin America, what the world can learn from the Brazilian Central Bank and its instant payment system picks, and so much more. Vamos Latam. I think Latin America really punches above its weight when it comes to creating value. When you take a one point of comparison to India, which again is a country that started probably five years ahead of us as far as accessing venture capital, growth of technology companies, and you look at Five or six years ago, India had something like 25 times the volume of venture capital on a percentage of GDP basis that Latin America has. So order of magnitude more venture capital than we did. And when you think about what we produced, you know, we did a lot more with less. We produced more billion dollar plus exits in the region. I think there were 12, $1 billion or plus IPOs and M&A exits in Latin America compared to eight. India. And we created a lot more equity value, you know, over $80 billion of equity value created in Latin America compared to 60-some in India. So I think that that history of being able to do more with less is going to serve us well when we think about the future and we start catching up. And I think it goes back to showing how competitive and how creative people can be. And I think that as you start leveling the playing field, when it's access to human capital, access to financial capital, I think that we're going to be surprised at what we see uh, going forward. We've definitely seen these companies that are national leaders and regional leaders. You have the maybe mega success of Nubank's IPO about a year and a half ago. Now it's you know billion dollar plus publicly listed technology company in the U.S. stock markets. And I think you're going to have over a dozen other companies out of Brazil predominantly going public in the U.S. stock markets over the next two years. And names like iFood and Quintondar and Loft and Wildlife and many, many others, Jim Pass, Logica, all these companies are going to go public. And I think it's, again, going to shine a, a bright light on the quality of the companies coming out of here and the quality of the entrepreneurs. And I think that the next wave that we're also starting to see is that entrepreneurs from the region are starting to have more and more global ambitions. And they're not building just for their country. They're not building just for their region, but they're building for the world. And some of the names I mentioned, you know, Jim Pass today, the company started out of Brazil, but the majority of its revenues, and certainly when it goes public, are going to be international. It's a new innovative business model going around the world. You know, Vtex, which is an e-commerce enablement uh, platform out of uh, Rio de Janeiro, where, where we're sitting today, again, U.S.-listed public tech company, which is nowadays growing predominantly abroad, serving international clients. I think if you look at Wildlife, one of the biggest gaming studios in the world, over 90% of its revenues are international. It's a company that was started globally from day one. And I think more and more you have entrepreneurs that see these role models and they try to emulate what they've been able to do. And I think we start taking more shots on goal as far as building large technology companies. And I think 
with some chance and some luck involved, many of these are going to become big global technology leaders. Number three. Number three is my conversation with Veronica Serra, founding partner at Brazilian venture capital growth fund Innova Capital, whose current investments include Semantics AI and ClearSale. Veronica is a former board member and investor of Mercado Libre and Movile iFood and current board member of Endeavor Global and Harvard Business School LATAM Advisory Board. We have touched on a lot of topics from how great VC investors make investment decisions to the most common traits of exceptional founders based on the examples of Movile and Mercado Libre. Both were in Veronica's investment portfolio. The part of our conversation I want to highlight for the purpose of this roundup is about Endeavor, the global entrepreneurship powerhouse that was vital for the growth of Latin American tech ecosystem. What impresses me about Endeavor and has always impressed me about Endeavor is the consistency of feedback that founders and mentors and board members provides about the organization. What do you think makes it so special? There's so many organizations who try to build the networks of founders, but no one is as successful as Endeavor. It's hard to talk about the secret sauce, but I think the vision that Linda and her co-founder Peter set from the beginning never really changed. And the idea, which seemed crazy at the time, but really came to fruition and, and is proven is that entrepreneurship and entrepreneurs really are the ones who transform economies. And the secret of Endeavor is that those entrepreneurs, once you back them with, and it's not with capital, uh, even though Catalyst exists, and I can explain what it is later, but when you back them in the sense of give them the right advice, putting together the, a group of people that is really top notch on whatever field they are. So lawyers or consultants or more experienced entrepreneurs giving advice to these up and coming entrepreneurs, you really are not just transforming that specific sector in which they're in, but those entrepreneurs will come back and themselves seed other entrepreneurs, advise other entrepreneurs, and create what we call now the bubbles, which are really a, a network of sort of cross-pollination of ideas, influences, capital, etc., which really transform these regions. So when you look at, for example, Mercado Libre as a bubble, and you see all the other companies that were born of ex-Mercado Libres like Kazek itself, which is a VC fund, it's tremendous. And the other entrepreneurs that they themselves invested in, who then have exits or make some money and then feed other entrepreneurs. So that effect really scales and transforms. And Endeavor has been able to do that on a global level, which is incredible. I think it also comes down to the, I would say, the really high standard of search and selection. When you search and select the best, the bar is very high. So it is a, almost like a Darwinian <laughs> selection where the best are attracted to the best. And so you're able to get 
really a class of entrepreneurs that every year is more impressive. And to close this loop comes Endeavor Catalyst, which now invests on a passive mode. So alongside other funds who decide to invest in Endeavor entrepreneurs. And through that sort of investment, Endeavor gets back capital to maintain its operation because it's a non-for-profit. And it's proven to be just an incredible model. I think it's one of the most incredible, self-sustainable, non-for-profit models that I've ever seen. Number two, the second most listened to episode of the year is the one with Diego Barreto, CFO and VP of strategy at iFood, the largest food tech company in Latin America, author of the bestseller New Economy and mentor at Endeavor. Prior to that, Diego was director of finance at Susano, the largest paper and pulp company in LATAM. For those who don't know, iFood holds over 80% market share in Brazil with over 70 million orders per month, 45 million active users, 300,000 restaurants in 1.5 thousand cities across the country. Naturally, the big part of our conversation was around iFood success, the impact of AI on food delivery market, and Brazilian gig economy. The part I will highlight here, though, is about mentorship and the role of strategy in startup success. When you think about your mentorship sessions with startup founders, what's your most typical advice to them? What are the things that you're most frequently discussing yeah. with your mentees? Well, the one that I most talk is strategy. 90% of the times we arrive at this. And you know why? In Brazil, we don't discuss strategy historically. There's no competition. The companies that lead the markets today are the same as that was leading 20, 30 years ago. You know why? Because there are huge amount of barriers to entry. You call the government and it gives incentives to you. You call the government and you get a subsidized loan. You call the government and you create a law that does not allow you to import certain products from US, from Europe. From... So it creates a lot of barriers that in the end create fat cats, like Garfield. <laughs> I love this. They eat, they sleep, they're okay, but they don't do anything. So in Brazil, we don't discuss strategy because historically, you don't need to discuss strategy. So what happened is that most of the entrepreneurs, they don't really understand strategy. Always tell them, okay, so what you just explained I can copy 100%. You're just building a commodity business model. How you can beat someone with a business model that doesn't have any strategy that clearly differentiated you. And then every time that I start with this, I recognize that people don't know the difference of the concepts. Barrier to entry, differentiation, competitive advantage. They don't understand these differences. And that's when we arrive to great discussions that is about I'm here at point A, I'm going to point B. I have several options to bring me here to here. What's the best one for me? How do I say no to the other ones? And then everything gets clear for them. And they can make, I'm not saying the right decision in the end, but they are making clear decisions. 
And that's the main impact I would say that I have in these mentorship sessions. Number one. And now our most listened to episode, the highlight of our 2023 season is the episode with Eduardo de la Maggiora, founder and CEO at LATAM's first social unicorn, Betterfly, that hit $1 billion valuation after raising $125 million in Series C funding, led by Glade Brook Capital and joined by Graycroft, Mundi Ventures, Lightrock, QED Investors, and DST Global Partners. The list of Betterfly's prior backers also includes the likes of Valor Capital, Endeavor Catalyst, and the SoftBank Latin America Fund. Eduardo has represented Chile in six occasions at the Ironman World Championships. He is two-time world champion runner-up in his category at the Ironman 70.3 World Championships, as well as three times finisher of the Ironman World Championships in Hawaii. In 2022, he was awarded as an Entrepreneur of the Year in Chile by Ernst & Young, and in 2022 and in 2021, he was recognized among the 500 most influential people in Latin America by Bloomberg. We've talked about big dreams, purpose-driven leadership, building businesses from Latin America to the world, why impact has to be embedded in every company's DNA, and so much more. The part that I want to share here is really about the fact that there's no limits to what we humans can do if we're going all in with a singularity of focus, deep obsession, and commitment to the goal. Eduardo's story is an inspiration to me, and I hope it will be to you as well. Where do you think is this need to test your limits or maybe expand your limits with what you do coming from? Has it always been your signature trait since you were little or you somehow acquired and nourished that trait? So I, I think there's two things there. First, I think I'm, when I do things, I'm very obsessed about the things I do. I don't like to do things just in an average way. If I do something, I'm going to do it in a very obsessive way. So it's singular focus. All in, all in, all in. All in, but the real all in. And I think obsession plays a part. But the part about my limits, I think, and what inspired me to become the athlete I became after those years is that my true motivator, more than, you know, winning a world championship, was to share my story one day and say, look, I'm an average guy. And the reality is I am. Before I started training, I did VO2 max and all of these you know, metrics that assess your athletic capacity. I'm a pretty average guy. The first half marathon I did, two hours, that's the average half marathon time of anyone out there. But I wanted to prove and share, look, if you go really all in, doesn't matter what stage of life you're in. If you start doing things you're passionate about and pursuing a dream, nothing's impossible. And being able to share that story, you know, I'm not 20 years of age, right? I'm competing as a world-class athlete in a sport I just started doing two, three years ago. And becoming one of the best in the world, not because of talent, but because of work and perseverance and resilience, that would inspire other people to pursue their own dreams. Because not everyone has to be doing triathlons. Everyone has a dream. Some people can dream about being a painter, others about being a content creator, others about being an investor, others about whatever it is. I do believe that to achieve your dreams, you have to do something you're deeply passionate about and go with a deep obsession about that path. So... My motivator was that when we said, okay, let's go to Boulder. I wrote a very big nine 
go under nine hours in Ironman Kona, Hawaii. The nine-hour barrier hadn't been broke by a Latin America age group triathlete ever in history. So I said, I'm going to go under nine hours. And even after becoming a world champion runner-up, going under a nine hour was an impossible task. So the next two, three years was all about making my body, adapting my body to be able to achieve that threshold and that goal. And my motivator was that. It was really about sharing the story one day. And if someone's listening, it's never late in life to dream a new dream, to pursue a new goal. And, uh, and this was my opportunity to pursue the dream I had left in a drawer when my dad passed away when I was 16. So I went all in and did it. And in October 2018, I finished Kona in eight hours and 51 minutes, which up until this day, the fastest time of a Latin America age group athlete. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The J-Curve and to the season 2023. If you enjoyed the 2023 season of The J-Curve, please subscribe to our channels on Spotify, Apple, and YouTube at The J-Curve Podcast. This is the best way to support the show. If you have guest recommendations for the next season, please send me an email at olga.maslikowithkh at gmail.com. Thank you for being with me this year and happy holidays.